electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza in San Francisco with John Fort from HQ. Carl has the morning off today. Tech stocks, they are surging after better than expected inflation numbers. What that means for the growth trade and changing investor expectations this hour. Plus, more on this morning's big moves. Roblox gets a reality check. Coinbase disappoints even as shares are moving higher. And finally, getting more bullish on Meta this morning. Why one big name likes it over Alphabet. John, we've got a huge show ahead. We didn't even talk Tesla, but we will. We will. We're going to talk a lot of things. I mean, from the metaverse to crypto, this virtual stuff, we're going to get a reality check. First on Roblox, just the latest metaverse name seeing a slump this quarter as shares fall after results that disappointed uh, showed a decrease in daily active users. And Unity, another metaverse name, also missing estimates by a wide margin this morning. All these results suggest that demand for virtual worlds and virtual currencies is falling. Bitcoin is down more than 20% since April. Coinbase just this morning reported a fall in active users, similar to Roblox, along with more than a billion dollars in losses. D, um, my question, and we're going to get to Rahul Sud in just a, a moment on this, um, Roblox is trading valuation-wise, I think it's around between 9 and 10 times revenue, right? It's got this 26 billion-ish um, market cap, which suggests that it's a platform and not a game, right? Not an app. I don't, I'm not convinced yet that this mm. is a platform, that this is scalable to the degree that tools are scalable. Um, John, I'm so glad you bring this up because I wanted to get your take on this ever since I read this line in the earnings transcript. The CEO, and I quote him, said, we're not a game. He said, we're not even really a gaming platform. To your point, he says, we are a future human co-experience platform. <laughs> Is that another way of saying metaverse? I, I, I need to know your thoughts on this. Well, I mean, if, if we're to take what he's saying at face value, it seems to me he's making an argument that they're more like what Xbox Live is, right. right? That's a platform for playing all kinds of games. It's an environment where people who enter it have different types of options. There are currencies that they can spend. There are potentially like community and viral effects. But right now, this looks more like Minecraft than it does like Xbox Live. It's, it's a game, a very popular game with an economy inside it. And we can yeah. argue about the, the degrees to which that economy just within that game can scale. But unless they can buy other things and expand mm. that ecosystem into wow. other games across other brands, not just inside Roblox, I'm not sure how long this scales. You're not buying it. Well, they have had concerts. They have been able to monetize. I thought one of the most interesting things about this set of earnings, too, is that the role of luxury brands, right? We know that free-to-play um, is maybe less recession-proof than some of the others on an Xbox Live. However, um, Gucci Town, Tommy Hilfiger Town, John, those were some of the games within the game that the CEO, that the company called out as being points of strength. So in that point, do you, know, do you buy that it could be a platform? There's a luxury side of it. There's a side that doesn't get as that is more vulnerable, perhaps, to a slowdown? No. 
I don't. Yet, I don't yet, because this, right. this is a lot like what Zynga used to say, right? About how they have this infinite scaling possibility because they had discovered mobile, and it worked for a while until it didn't. And, yeah, and to that point, too. So, yeah, they let's, say they're, let's they're bring going Rahul, after the older demographic. Yes, let's bring Rahul into this conversation for more. Uh, he's steeped in the metaverse. Now he's Irreverent Labs co-founder and CEO, Rahul Sud. Uh, Irreverent launching their first NFT play-to-earn game, Mecha Fight Club, after recently raising a $40 million Series A led by Andreessen Horowitz. And Rahul, you've been in the gaming PC seat. You're at Microsoft, uh, where they've got Xbox, which I was just mentioning. Um, what's your take on at least the framing I'm attempting here? The question is whether Roblox is a platform or just a really successful game with an economy inside it. Well, I, I think your your um, your assessment is probably more correct. Um, you know that it is more of a game that's trying to be a platform. You know the, the the thing about Roblox is it caters to a much younger demographic. So you know un, unless like if you think about the the pandemic, kids weren't in school. Uh, you know they're able to sort of spend money on games. They parents wanted kids out of their hair, so they had a massive spike during the pandemic, and you know lots of little games were being played and built on Roblox, but uh, but, you know, unless they completely expand their demographics somehow, like I don't see five, six year olds or even 10 year olds buying Gucci. Um, you know, it's cool as a story, uh, but uh, they have to expand their demographic or make uh, new acquisitions in the space to really think about down the road. How do they how do they turn this into new mixed reality experiences? And there, there is some, potentially a future there. There's some signs that they could be doing that in the sense that they're uh, I forget whether it was median or average age of a user. Uh, did move up uh, above. They have more users over 13 years old, but their user base isn't growing that much. So you don't know if that's younger people leaving or older, older people coming in more. But what's also interesting about this space to me is you take Roblox's market cap, it's almost, you put App Lovin' and Unity together, it, it's just a little bit smaller than those two together. But they are doing tools. They are doing, working on platforms that are seeking to, to sort of engage this whole ecosystem of potentially metaverse and mobile uh, gamers. Should, do you think Unity should combine with AppLovin or, or is Iron Source a better bet for them? I personally, I think Iron Source is a better bet for them. I, I think, I mean, I, I didn't realize that AppLovin had, you know, 17 billion to, to, to acquire Unity, but I guess they don't because they want to do an all stock transaction. So I, I really don't know how real that looks. Um, I think they should do a deal with uh, with Iron Source. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Unity is building tools. Uh, there, you know, there's two choices in in engines for for game developers. It's Unity or or Unreal. And uh, and Unity has a great 3D engine. We're building on Unity. Um, we think that um, you know they have they they are enabling sort of the the, the future of this space in a way that um, you know, other companies can't. So yeah, so I, I feel Unity should just finish the deal with Iron Source and get it done. Hmm. Rahul, um, this whole idea though, traditionally that gaming is more recession proof or at least recession resistant, that's kind of being turned on its head over the last few weeks from the results that we got across chip makers to gaming consoles to video game publishers. Um, what do you make of that? Has that argument changed because we see more free to play, more mobile games in this ecosystem? No, look, I, I think it's just temporary to, to, to be quite frank. Like it's it's like everything is down. Basically, the markets are generally down. And uh, I think a lot of companies are kind of cutting 
uh, costs ahead of the consumer uh, because of this, you know, because of inflation and because of the way the markets are. Um, but, uh, but you know, to, to us, the future of entertainment is these mixed reality gaming experiences. I think gaming is going to be, or gaming and entertainment is kind of like the, the place where everything will converge, where um, players will have ownership in the game. Players will have emotional connections to the characters that they own and play. Um, artificial intelligence is going to play a huge role in the space. Um, and I think the, the key to unlocking this metaverse, I, I know metaverse has thrown out quite a bit, uh, but but we really fundamentally believe in it. And the key to unlocking it is to make it an all day effortless experience. Like VR is cool, but it's very short term. It's fun for like an hour at the most. And then you get mm -hmm. kind of a headache. Uh, but I, I think these mixed reality experiences with glass um, is is huge. I think, you know, Meta's vision for where it could go is great. It might be too far down the road, but this is exactly where things need to converge is in these mixed reality experiences. So, Rahul, then do you think that we're too early? You think that that thesis is intact, that gaming is recession proof? What are we seeing now then? What do you attribute it to? Well, gaming is absolutely recession proof. I've been a gamer for, you know, my entire career. And, you know, I, I, when the markets are down, People play games and the markets are up, people play games. So gaming is definitely recession proof. I think you have to look at the infrastructure, uh, you know, around gaming and the metaverse. Um, if you ask about, are we too early? Well, look, I think meta is probably, you know, probably came in a little early with uh, with their vision. And, and now they have to convince investors that this is the right path for them, you sure. know. Um, but, but I would look at things like, you know, Amazon, Unity, Epic, Microsoft, uh, Apple, Alphabet, NVIDIA, you know, AMD, IBM. Even like C3 AI, like and so, any okay. sort of AI machine learning type stuff. Let's yeah. go back. Let's go back to Unity Iron Source, which is the combination you favor, which I view as an Adobe-esque uh, attempt to combine tools and data, but for the next uh, generation of this space. If that is the right idea, whose hand gets forced by that combination and AppLovin putting itself in play? Is it an Adobe? Microsoft is busy, right, um, trying to do the Activision Blizzard acquisition. What other players might get forced to get into the M&A game if that's the right move to make? Well, I mean, you know, Microsoft might be busy, but they're huge, right? M Microsoft can still do a, a deal in this space if they if they want to, but they're already building tools on cloud for, you know, for companies like Unity, right? Like, I think Unity recently announced a deal with, with Microsoft on Azure. Um, I, who do I think there is, is going to force their hand? If anything, I think what will happen next is Unity will start looking at how do we take, you know, the data that we're building and gathering and, and apply machine learning to it. Um, you know, the, the uh, and, and not even just like the data, but being able to apply machine learning to automate the creation of these, um, these objects. So, for example, if you're an artist and you're creating characters, Imagine being able to take that 3D art and putting it through a pipeline and having it jump right into Unity from Blender using machine learning. Um, that's kind of the future where they kind of automate that work uh, and and make the, the the job for the artist or the creator much easier. Okay. So, well, unless you know, you're so an artist, you have a hard time imagining exactly what you just said, but we get the idea. Um, Rahul, thank you. Uh, that, that sort of inside perspective on how it needs to work is so important. Rahul said. Thanks, Sean. Good perspective. Thanks, uh, meanwhile, 
Session highs, the Dow's up about 570 points. And check out Coinbase recovering all of its pre-market losses amid the broader rally this morning, especially in tech. But while shares are higher, the quarter, it was ugly. Second one of consecutive losses. Kate Rooney with more on that. Kate, um, I've been looking over the last month. Shares are up nearly 50 percent. The quarter is backward looking. Investors are really focused on what's ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of see some of that data in real time. So it's easy to sort of forecast the trading revenue that really was expected. But the billion dollar loss for Coinbase was bigger than investors had been anticipating. It was a profitable company just a year ago. And revenue still very much tied to crypto trading. It was down 64 percent in a year. It also lowered guidance for users and warned of slower trading volume and revenue per, revenue per user to come. I sat down with CFO Alicia Haas. She said they're cutting operating expenses, but still plan to spend for growth and potential M&A. We want to do prudent spend. We are okay with burning in the short term because we think that the growth opportunities are so high, but we want to be rational and spend a proper amount vis-a-vis the capital resources that we have. Investors have worried as well about pressure on Coinbase's margins with more competition out there. She said growing revenue beyond Trading to things like staking and NFTs should help, but no changes on fees yet. We have not seen the need to lower fees on the retail side over the last few quarters. And we are constantly running pricing experiments and looking at price elasticity. And we don't see fee being the driving factor for retail products right now. Regulation is always a big theme for Coinbase and an overhang on the stock, according to Haas. She says uncertainty is keeping institutional money on the sidelines and casting a shadow on Coinbase as well as the industry. Guys. A couple interesting things she said there. Um, Okay with burning money in the short term, which is interesting because clearly different things are driving the stock. Um, No need to lower fees. That's interesting. Why wouldn't someone switch to an FTX or a Binance that have sort of eliminated fees or are going to? So on the retail side, that's the big question. She said that's inevitable in the long term, that there will be fee compression like we've seen play out in stock. She said in the near term, though, they're not going to lower fees. The thought, though, is that long term, they're going to face that pressure. She admitted it and said, yeah, we'll likely have to lower fees. It's just not there yet. And with all the competition out there, the fees, though, are a lot lower on the institutional side. It's interesting. For retail, it's about 2%. For institutions, it's only a couple basis points. So they've already gotten there on the institutional side, but the right. pressure and competition is really picking up. And the profits, right? Yes. Kate, thank you so much. We're going to talk about this more. Um, our next guest didn't expect the company to post favorable second quarter results, but he did open a positive catalyst watch on the stock, seeing upside ahead from Ethereum's upcoming transition to proof of stake. Joining us now, City Analyst Pete Christensen. Uh, Pete, I don't want to get too technical or in the weeds, but... That focus on staking ahead of the Ethereum merge, um, it would be very early here um, versus being late to another business like NFTs, for example. So what is the opportunity? How long would investors have to wait for that? What would it do to revenue in the bottom line? Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to be here. well, first, we, we need to find out exactly when the ETH2 merge is going to happen. And, and, and a lot of uh, progress has, has gotten there recently. Uh, and in the next week or so, we're going to get more definitive news on when the actual merge date will occur. I think the provisional soft date is set for September 19th. Um, so, so hopefully we'll, we'll hit around that, that, that area. As, as for the revenue opportunity for, uh, for Coinbase, uh, they certainly take a commission as a validating service uh, in staking protocols. Uh, so that's clearly an upside opportunity there. Currently, they stake, I think, uh, six or seven currencies. They, they launched Cardano in March and recently Solana. 
Um, and, and this is uh, a big part of the reason why you're starting to see growth in the subscription and services line. Uh, Ethereum is Ethereum 2 will, will be a much larger contributor mm-hmm. in our view. Uh, we'll have to wait to see uh, yeah. how, what the initial yields are and how that attracts users. But we, we do think that it's a meaningful upside opportunity for them. Down the road, which, it could which, even... Right, maybe further down the road, Pete. I wonder, sort of in the nearer term then, when you take a look at what Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX are doing, they're being very aggressive in terms of their investments um, and deal activity. The CFO of Coinbase told our Kate Rooney that they're okay with burning cash now. They're still in growth mode, investment mode. Um, should they be more aggressive? Do they risk falling behind if Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX are making bigger moves, especially if everyone's trying to set up for the next crypto boom, if there is one? Right. Well, I, I think spending up to $4.2 billion in, in OPEX this year, scaling up the business headcount, uh, so on and so forth, is pretty aggressive, <laughs> to, to say the least. We don't, we don't know compared to what FDF. exactly the competitors are. Um, but what we think, uh, what, what Coinbase, I think, uh, played a fine line last night, being able to prudently manage the business in, in a rougher period, but at the same time scaling for their top five priorities. And, and some of those, one of those priorities is to be the number one staking uh, uh, service provider out there. And we think they certainly have the capability to do so. Pete, thanks so much for your insights. Uh, we continue to watch Coin, which is up 6% in today's session. Talk to you soon. Pete Christensen. Thank you. Elon Musk selling more Tesla shares after he implied that he wouldn't, but he kind of needed to. What that means for Twitter next. Plus, rare name in the red today. More on the quarter sending Akamai shares lower with CEO Tom Layton. That is also next. Tech Check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Tesla. The stock is on the rise this morning, up about 2%. It's underperforming the broader markets, especially tech. And that's a CEO, Elon Musk, sells about 8 million of his shares, according to SEC filings. If you're trying to do the math, the move nets him nearly $7 billion, though Musk did take to Twitter to explain, saying that he offloaded the shares in case Twitter forces the deal to close or some equity partners back out, some pointing to the news as a positive sign for Twitter. Wedbush raising their price target on the name, saying that there's an even higher chance now, John, the deal closes. Could be a settlement as well. And the big question, what in the world happens to Twitter after all of this is done in either scenario? Yeah, either way, he's acknowledging the possibility of defeat. Uh, He's got to hedge against that possibility. Uh, We'll see if Parag agrees to that debate. Uh, in the meantime, let's turn now to cybersecurity and the data economy. Akamai delivering a beat on the top and bottom lines in the latest results. But like so many others this earnings season, posting a miss on the Q3 guide, lowering the outlook for the rest of the year. Joining us now to break it all down, Akamai co-founder and CEO, Dr. Tom Layton. Uh, Tom, welcome. Um, it, it seems like part of the message here is that 
the inflation effect on your revenue and the headwinds there. And then just everything that's happening to slow the economy is perhaps also slowing some of the data flows that, uh, that, that feed into your business? Yeah, that's right. Uh, foreign exchange isn't helping either. About half our revenue is from overseas. Uh, and we're really seeing the impact in our media verticals, uh, e-gaming, less traffic there, uh, video, OTT, uh, even advertising have been impacted. So traffic is up year over year, but not nearly as much as it normally would be. And so that's got a near-term dampening of our revenue growth. We were pleased with Q2 results. Uh, we grew revenue 9%, really excited about security and compute. That's now the majority of our business. Uh, people think of us as the CDN company with traffic, but the majority is security and compute. And that grew 30% year over year in constant currency. So really exciting. So how is that affecting your approach to CapEx? You talked in the call about uh, really some cost controls that you're working on, including spending less CapEx wise. What specifically are you spending less on and how are you prioritizing uh, things that are going to result in higher margins? Yeah, we've been shifting uh, focus on investment uh, towards security, especially in zero trust, where we have the market leading solution to stop ransomware and towards compute, which is an enormous potential market for us. Uh, and so we're saving a lot on CapEx because we're deploying less uh, servers for delivery, especially the peak events where you'd spend a lot to build out the capacity and the revenue is not that much there. So you see that in our results, a little bit less revenue, but a much, uh, very strong cash flows because of the savings on CapEx. What does that do for your relationship with data center providers? Do you need less from them uh, for the foreseeable future going forward? You talked about some of these economic impacts lasting several quarters. Yeah, so we're still growing and we're still investing in the platform, of course, but not at the rate that we were before. And so the CapEx is much lower than we'd anticipated. You know, historically, network CapEx would be 8 to 10% of revenue, and we were 3% uh, last quarter. And we think it'll be low to mid-single digits uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, so we're, you know, adapting to what's going on out there and really excited about the future in security and compute where there's just tremendous growth potential. Yeah. All right. Jim Chanos, take note with his uh, data center thesis. Uh, I want to I want to finally ask about the workforce. Are you slowing hiring, freezing hiring? Are you cutting? Are you still hiring? Are you are you, you know, maybe uh, hiring gangbusters in the security area that you're excited about? Uh, we are continuing to hire. Uh, we're not freezing or doing a riff. Uh, we've been very disciplined in the hiring over the last couple of years. You know, some companies did a sort of went through a boom and now a bit of a bust there. But we've been steady and obviously focused in security uh, and in compute. Uh, you know, with the Linode acquisition really puts us in a great position to tap into an enormous compute market. And we were really excited to sign up our first major enterprise customer with a critical app that just, that one app is worth millions of dollars a year as it scales. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. All right, Tom Layton, CEO of Akamai, thank you. Thank you. T Top NASDAQ gainers this morning. Take a look at us. all of those beaten down growth names. Zscaler at the top of that list with gains of more than 8%. You've also got DocuSign, Datadog, CrowdStrike, and of course Meta, which we're going to be talking about later. Um, plus, what this morning's inflation read means for tech stocks. That's up next. We're back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. 
it was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort and Julia Borston. Checking in on markets half past the hour. The Dow is up nearly 550, but the Nasdaq, the real outperformer here, up 2.5% after those better-than-expected inflation numbers. The growth trade really on fire this morning. Plus, more on the media outlook after a slew of bad reports this earnings season. And Disney results tonight. The chairman of Sony Pictures, he will join us to discuss it all in just a moment. First, a news update. Let's get to Christina Partsinopoulos. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Prices that consumers pay for a variety of goods and services rose 8.5% in July from a year ago. That's less than expected and less than June's increase, due largely to a big drop in gasoline prices. Shelter costs, which also make up about one-third of the CPI weighting, continued to rise and are up 5.7% just over the past 12 months. Nikola announcing CEO Mark Russell will retire at the end of the year. Russell will be, re- be replaced by Michael Loescheller, formerly the CEO of German automaker Opel, who joined Nikola back in February. And Archer Aviation Incorporation announcing a $10 million pre-delivery payment from United Airlines for 100 electric vertical takeoff and landing aircrafts. The president of United Airlines Ventures says this technology could help the carrier reach carbon neutral targets while also helping the airline aid consumers with commutes across the globe. Mike, John, whoever's there, back over to you. I'm here, Christina. I said Santoli, sorry. <laughs> well, we should, we should hear from Mike Santoli, and especially because... CPI coming in cooler than expected, consumer prices rising less than expected. That's provided fodder for the bulls this morning. Perhaps inflation has peaked. The market's reacted. The Nasdaq is up more than 2%. So, I mean, the bat signal is up. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli, what's going on? It looks like a lot of really speculative names in tech. Affirm, Asana, Bill.com. Uh, DoorDash, I mean, however you feel about the businesses, they've been the volatile ones affected here. They're up double digits. Yeah, pretty strong wave. Uh, Those are the stocks that do get washed higher when we do have this type of action. If, in fact, what we're seeing is a little more uh, evidence that it was peak inflation, perhaps peak bond yields, perhaps peak Fed hawkishness, arguably it means that there's now support for higher valuation stocks and just market uh, equity valuations in general. Interesting spot. It's taken the NASDAQ 100 to right here. It's been making progress, of course, since mid-June. If you go from the January uh, peak there, though, uh, it shows you that this is kind of making a bid to reverse this trend line that's been lower for a while. It's going to, you know, take some some proving here. But that's where we've now gotten to, and it's been the outperformer, as you mentioned. Now, take a look at the NASDAQ 100 relative to the kinds of stocks that benefit from a high inflation environment. There, of course, is an ETF for this, INFL. Uh, This is over uh, the the current quarter. So quarter to date, since June 30th, you see, obviously, massive outperformance here by uh, those kind of disinflationary growth names that drive the NASDAQ 100 over the inflation place. Now, that being said, on a one-year basis and a year-to-date basis, it's the other way around. These inflation stocks are almost about flat year-to-date, which, of course, is massively outperforming the broad market. So, again, a progress, but maybe not you know, final proof that we are where we wanted to get to in terms of the soft landing, folks. 
Yeah, and big debate over whether we bottomed or not. Um, Mike, when you look at the growthiest of growth trades, the ARK Innovation ETF, that's up about 5% today, 26% since the quarter began. What is that telling us about the trade? Yeah, I mean, when you do have a little bit of a flush into riskier assets, the riskiest ones, the lowest quality, arguably lowest financial quality or lowest earnings power, they're going to move the fastest. It's just the way these dynamics work. One of these rallies, probably going to be the real one. Um, I wouldn't necessarily look to just re you know, rewind the script and say we're going to have the kind of you know, leadership from that category of stocks anytime soon. But on a day like today, when really what's going on is a massive tension release, uh, those are the ones that are going to uh, you know, get the most benefit in the short term. So, Mike, from, from what you can tell from the conversations that you're having, what is priced in with the indices at these levels? When we talk about soft landing, we mean yeah. slowing the economy without having a, a, a recession, really. When we talk about that's right. um, a, a mild recession, that's just one where, I mean, markets sometimes perform pretty well in mild recession. Is this a mild recession that's being priced in here and just not a, a serious one, or is it a soft landing? I think it probably is more priced for some version of a soft landing. Now, we could talk about negative GDP prints. We got two quarters of them. If you want to call that a recession, despite you know, what the normal definition is, fine. What I think the market's pricing in is corporate earnings that more or less hold at the currently projected levels. Uh, so that, in other words, that companies don't actually start to suffer, have top line growth go down across the board, have their margins really compressed a lot. And that means 2023 earnings forecasts are way too high. I think the market's now saying maybe they're not way too high. Maybe they're just normally high the way they always are on a typical start of a year. And then they get whittled a little bit lower. So that's where we are. We're not really cheap based on the current out earnings outlook, but certainly, you know, in our, at a reasonable value uh, compared to where we were six months ago, if the earnings hold together. Mike, thank you. Speaking of earnings, um, the outlook, it's mixed, but for media names this earnings season, um, that's also been mixed. We're going to talk about what to expect from Disney tonight as we sit down with the chairman of Sony Pictures Entertainment. That's up next. Welcome back. Will it be the happiest earnings on earth? Let's talk about Disney. Earnings are after the bell. The last of the media giants to report in Q2. We are going to be watching uh, streaming subs, parks, potential new details on sports rights deals. Julia Borston is here to help us break things down. Julia, people are getting out again. I guess that's good for parks, but streaming is taking a turn. Well, that's the real question here. I mean, look, Disney is expected to grow both revenue and earnings by over 20%. So showing meaningful growth over last year. And a lot of that growth is really expected to come from the parks division. But John, we know that this is a stock that is likely to move, not just on streaming, but also the outlook for streaming. The company is expected to add about 10 million subs for its Disney Plus streaming service. And then Deirdre, the question that I'm going to be most focused on perhaps is whether or not they reiterate their long-term guidance yeah. for their streaming goals, because this is a company that has pivoted so much to focus on streaming. What will they tell us about how they're bundling uh, of Hulu plus ESPN plus, plus Disney plus is all working and what's their outlook? 
Yeah, that, that target, 230 to 260 million subscribers by 2024. Time is sort of running running on that clock. Um, Julia, I was listening to Jim Cramer and David Faber this morning talking about what they should actually be focused on. And they were kind of saying that they shouldn't really be talking about streaming at all. They should put the focus on parks um, to show that they're not in that streaming category necessarily, or at least the focus, that they have this other hedge that a lot of the other streamers don't have. What do you think they're going to do? Well, look, I think that this is really a very diversified business. And the question, though, is whether each of the different pieces of the business are, in fact, going to be impacted by all this economic uncertainty. So, yes, I think you're right. I think the parks is a major growth driver. I suspect, though, because of the focus of analysts uh, and investors on this future of streaming, they will be talking a lot about streaming. And of course, remember that they announced that they were going to be introducing an ad-supported service. That's something that Netflix is also working on. So we'll see how that fits into things. And then also their streaming bundle. But then, of course, don't forget, there's also this advertising piece uh, of the puzzle here. And Disney is exposed to advertising, uh, not only because of their new Disney Plus streaming service in the works, but on their linear networks as well. And that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because so many of these other media companies have talked about an overall pullback in advertising that they're reckoning with. Um, but this gives us a great opportunity now to dive deeper into the media landscape with a perfect guest who has quite a perspective on it, Sony Pictures Entertainment Chairman and CEO Tony Vincicuera. Tony, thanks for talking to us today. Hey, Julie. Great to be with you. So, Tony, last week, um, Sony reported better than expected results, particularly in your division, in the entertainment division here. Talk to us about what's driving this upside. Well, it, you know, we restructured a company about five years ago and really focused it on responding to how our customers are, are looking to do business with us. We didn't jump into the, the uh, uh, general entertainment subscription video business, and we became, with, for lack of a better term, the arms dealer for the, for the industry, and it's paid off really, really well. We've had, you know, last year, our fiscal year, which ended in March, we were up 75% in, uh, in operating profit. We started out this year, the first quarter, up 70%. We're on a good track, and it's a very, very broad-based a business now. We've added anime. <clears throat> As you know, we, we merged the Funimation and Crunchyroll. Uh, we have a big India business, which we're now waiting for regulatory approval to make it an even bigger, uh, have an even bigger presence in India. And, you know, we're firing on all cylinders. So, Tony, I want to talk to you, though, about this this strategy of being the arms dealer. And it's been very effective when all of the other media companies have been expanding and investing so much. But now mm -hmm. you have Netflix, its subscriber base contracting. They've talked a lot about being more fiscally cons careful, conservative. Mm -hmm. You have companies like Warner Brothers Discovery, which would be buyers for for their, you know, for their streaming services, you have them talking about cutting billions of dollars in costs. The fact that so many players right now are are pulling back their spending, how problematic is that going to be for you? I, I don't think at all. You know, as I as I mentioned, we've expanded our base of business pretty broadly over the past few years, and you know, while while the streaming uh, uh, services have all said they're going to be more fiscally conservative, they're still going to have to put product on their services in order to draw subscribers. They're still at, in battle every day trying to get subscribers for those services. You mentioned just a moment ago what Disney is looking looking to do in the streaming business to expand. Um, Netflix, while they, they, they had a rough time recently, but now they're being judged as a media company as opposed to a 
as opposed to a tech company. And I think that's very good for the business. They're now they're now operating as a business that is in media. And, uh, you know, they're, they, they've said they're not going to cut uh, their expenditures on premium product. We are a premium provider for them. Um, HBO, I'm not sure where that's going to go, but we had one. We only had one show on HBO, actually, that they, which had 100 uh, percent rating from consumers and they just canceled it. So, I mean, we're not all that concerned about it, though. It's, uh, you know, those services are going to continue to compete. And while while this is all going on, we're expanding our base of business in a very, very aggressive way. And what do you make of Netflix working to launch an ad-supported version and the fact that Disney has one in the works? What's that going to do to the overall landscape and where consumers are spending their money and time? Well, you, you may recall that it was at Fox where we launched Tulu and you know we launched it as a, an ad-supported business and then went to a subscription business. Those, those businesses operate very, very well together, very in a very complimentary fashion. I think both of them will do well. They'll expand their base of subscribers. And again, that will help us as, a, as you know, our colloquial term of uh, being an arms dealer. It'll help us in our, in our development as well. So I think it's great. They will need to renegotiate some of the deals they have for programming, of course, uh, in order to be able to put advertising into those programs. And so that renegotiation, does that mean more revenue for you down the line? Uh, how, how would you say that's going to play out in terms of the potential in a, financial in a, word, in a single word, yes, <laughs> it, will be, it will be a positive for us. Uh, and, and then there's a question about the theatrical movie business. I mean, obviously, the numbers are way up this summer from last summer as people get more out and about. But long-term, there's still these questions about windowing, how long movies should be in theaters before they're available at home, and also whether we're just gonna see fewer movies released um, because maybe audiences are expecting the bigger movies, so fewer bigger budget movies. What is your expectation based on what you've seen this summer with films such as Bullet Train? Well, you and I have talked about the theatrical business for the last four or five years, and you know we are very bullish on the theatrical business. and. You know, this summer for us has been a real testing ground. We released two films this year, this summer, uh, Where the Crawdads Sing and Bullet Train, both original films, relatively, Crawdads, much smaller budget film, uh, Bullet Train, a medium budget film, both have been very successful for us, gotten us off to a great start in the second quarter. I, I, have, no, I have no doubts that uh, the theatrical business will be just as it always was. It's a risky business one that we're very comfortable with, one that we know very well, and one that we'll be successful with. Not, not a big concern on our, on our part. Well, we appreciate you joining us today to talk about your quarterly results and what's ahead for this very complex and fast-changing media industry. Tony, thank you. Great to be with you. And Julia, thank you for bringing that to us. I haven't seen either of those movies, but I did go to the theater for Top Gun Maverick. Coming up, more on why Roblox shares are falling this morning, plus a check on advertising as shares of One Name in the Space shows no signs of a slowdown, and Bank of America picks Meta over Google. That's the alphabet, or alphabet. Don't go away. Well, video game companies saw huge gains during the pandemic. That growth is now coming to a halt or at least moderating, but with names like Roblox 70% off their highs, is there hope for the fall? Steve Kovac joins us with more. Steve, we've heard from Roblox's CEO, also Rahul Sud earlier in our show. They say that gaming is still recession-proof, despite uh, some 
Data points to the contrary. Yeah, that's right, Dee. And then some of their peers are saying different things. So let's talk about this. Gaming companies are warning of a tough times ahead after a dismal second quarter for the industry. Video game spending falling 13 percent in the second quarter, according to research firm NPD. And that showed up in the results from companies like Take-Two Interactive and Activision. It could get worse, guys. Take-Two CEO Strauss Zelnick on Mad Money this week saying gaming is not recession-proof, adding people will spend money on food and gas before video games. Take-Two and others providing disappointing guidance for the rest of the year. It's not just this drop in spending either. These companies do a lot of business in Europe and Asia, where foreign exchange headwinds are the worst. Roblox facing slowing growth as well, planning ways to diversify revenue outside selling digital items to players. CEO Dave Bazuki saying on the earnings call just this morning, the company will launch a metaverse advertising platform this year. We'll also have to prove they have finally lapped those tough comparisons from peak COVID. But still a tough environment for gaming ahead. We heard that warning from NVIDIA earlier this week and other hardware makers like Nintendo reporting disappointing results, guys. So, Steve, what does this mean for Christmas, um, particularly when it comes to consoles and the game sales that often come off of that? That's, that's several months out, but critical for this industry. Yeah, John, they're going to really be pushing their subscription services. This is the Xbox Game Pass, which lets you play Xbox games basically on anything with an Internet connection. And then Sony has their own version of that, which basically these subscription services give you access to a library of dozens or hundreds of games. And they're going to push that in a really this. There aren't huge releases coming out this uh, this year, John, that are going to really drive people to spend more on games. All right, Steve. Thank you. Moffat Nathanson having deja vu this morning, taking Roku back down to underperform and pointing to the same reason they downgraded the name last November. High competition, high costs, and the stock's 20 plus percent rise off of its lows. More market action after the break. Don't go away. Let's get a gut check on a name that's doing well in digital advertising. Julia Borston has that for us. Julia? John, check out this move for Trade Desk. Shares surging this morning after better than expected results with guidance coming in above the consensus. That stock up over 34%. The company saying they're confident that they can gain market share in any economic environment based on these results. And the street likes what they're seeing. Oppenheimer raising its price target to $78 a share, calling the name, quote, the clear software leader in digital advertising. And those shares are up nearly 35%. D. Let's take a look now at two mega cap names for our latest edition of Overvalued, Undervalued. Bank of America taking Alphabet off of its U.S. list of best investment ideas, adding Meta instead, um, or Facebook, has lost roughly half of its value year to date. Meta trades at a slightly lower price to earnings ratio, as you can see. We're going to pull it up on the right of the screen. Um, but there's also this question of free cash flow. This is a very important metric for value investors. Even after sinking billions of dollars into the metaverse as of this past quarter, Meta trades at half of the price to cash flow ratio as Alphabet. Here, John, a lower ratio means that it is more undervalued. Um, and it is kind of interesting because both of these companies are pouring a lot of money into future investments. We know that very well about Meta, that it's pouring billions into the metaverse, but still, you know, good free cash flow for a value investor. Well, I've said it before. I'll continue to say it, D. I'm not convinced yet that Meta's model is irrevocably <laughs> broken, that, that yeah. it, they can't figure this out based on the huge user base 
that they've got, users actually growing in some of the products in their portfolio, and just the enormous access to data that they have. So yes, they're having trouble with targeting right now. The trade desk uh, seems to be yeah. doing well despite that. But you know, if you think that Meta, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, primarily, and then some other stuff too. If you think that they have the capacity that Mark Zuckerberg isn't giving up, they have the capacity to figure this out, then yes, relative to some other things John, out there, this is cheaper. Is that is that optimism on the metaverse I'm hearing from you? Or no. are you just talking about the ad business? No, I'm talking about their actual business okay. in the right. real world that I makes money. I thought I saw a hint there. No. Uh, I mean, you know, again, <laughs> it's not that I don't believe any piece of this metaverse stuff. We've been talking about Unity and Iron Source and App Lovin' and the idea that there's uh, an economy, there's fintech around digital goods and immersive environments. Sure, but this idea that we're all going to be spending time in Ready Player One, no, I don't buy it. Um, I buy it even less <laughs> it's a scary than I thought. did a few months ago. All right, one rare name in the red today, online retailer, The Real Real. Disappointing results and a forecast cut hitting things there. Also raising a real question for other beaten down competitors like Stitch Fix and Poshmark. Don't go away. One more thing before we hand it off. A major change in the long-standing, legendary SoftBank Alibaba partnership. SoftBank reducing its stake further, but here's the real news. It will no longer buy back shares in derivatives deals. The company SoftBank had made a series of deals allowing it to raise cash while having the option to buy back Baba shares later. Now SoftBank is giving up that right, and Financial Times is calling this, quote, a definitive step back from the 22-year-old bet in which Masayoshi-san built his name as one of the world's greatest technology investors. John? He's got a 300 years vision. What is the next Baba? I think that's the key question here. <laughs> yeah, is there he, one? Can you do that deal twice? Away. He can't stay away. Well, <laughs> with the NASDAQ at session highs up 2.7%, S&P up 2%, that'll do it. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.